Hey everyone, John Mark Comer here. You are about to listen to the final episode of season one of the Rule of Life podcast. Before we jump into my conversation with Andy Crouch, which is going to be a lot of fun, by the way, just a short invitation. As most of you know by now, this entire podcast and the Sabbath practice itself was made possible by the generosity of the circle, which is a group of people from all over the world, literally, who give monthly to Practicing the Way with this dream that we have in our heart of seeing discipleship to Jesus, ancient and modern, and the best of the spiritual formation movement integrated into the life of the church, not only in the West, but around the world. We already have churches running this in Kenya and Nigeria and Saudi Arabia and far beyond. Sabbath is the first of nine practices that we plan to release over the next few years, along with podcasts and long-form courses and books and more offerings. But we are a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by the generosity of everyday, ordinary people like you and me. Yes, we have some people who give monthly to the circle with a very large dollar amount, but most people give 10 or 20 or $30 a month. Most people are very young and very ordinary. Again, people like you and me. You likely already pay $19.99 a month for Netflix, 10 bucks a month for Apple Music or Spotify, five bucks a month for your periodical of choice. Would you consider giving monthly to Practicing the Way $5 a month, $10 a month? Again, our dream is to see ordinary people kind of step up, own this work, partner with us at a financial level, and see this work integrated into the church in the West. So no pressure at all, but as you listen to this podcast, would you just prayerfully consider that? Of course, whatever giving, may it please be over and above your giving to the local church. Our conviction is that our giving should be primarily to our local church and to the poor. And after that, and on top of that, to things like practicing the way. So as God is stirring in your heart, would you partner with us, even if it's just a few dollars a month, if you join the circle, you'll get special invitations to things that we don't go public with. You'll get insider information. You'll get a monthly update, all sorts of fun things to make it a great time for you. Thank you for considering and enjoy this last episode of season one, Sabbath. You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is season one, Sabbath. Okay, everybody, you are about to listen in on a conversation I had recently with Andy Crouch. Now, I get the chance to sit down with all sorts of highly intelligent people from around the world, and I love it. It's one of my favorite things about my job. But it is very rare for me to meet someone whose life is even more beautiful than their mind. Andy Crouch is one of those people. This conversation I found entertaining and thoughtful and wise and fascinating. I'm still thinking about aspects of it. But Andy, off microphone, off screen, is an even more beautiful soul. 
I've had the privilege of getting to know Andy over the last few years. And while mentor is too strong of a word, he is very much someone a decade or so ahead of me that I look up to and respect and emulate in all sorts of ways. Andy is one of the best public Christian intellectuals we have right now, in my opinion. He's best known as a writer. He's the author of a number of books, most recently, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Before that, The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. And a lot of his work is at the intersection of technology and the digital revolution that we're living through and Christian spirituality. Before that, he was an editor and journalist with Christianity Today. So he really has his head around the church in North America and around the world. And currently, he is a partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization in New York City that works as a creative engine for what they call redemptive entrepreneurship. He and the Praxis crew are at the bleeding edge of the faith and work movement. All that to say, Andy is just a delight to be with. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Andy Crouch. Uh, Andy, you are a partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis. Give us a one-liner on what is Praxis? What do you do? Yeah, Praxis, a community of Christians trying to advance what we call redemptive entrepreneurship in the world. Yeah, fascinating. So you work with entrepreneurs, Christian entrepreneurs. You were the longtime kind of editor of Christianity Today. We're a journalist. So I think of you as kind of one of our preeminent Christian intellectuals. And just Lord, a gift. Yeah, that... I would not want to be have that said over me, nor has it ever been said over me. But uh, that is how I think of you. You're also a prolific writer, most recently, The Life We're Looking For, and before that, The TechWise Family. Both, I feel like, are symptomatic of kind of your corpus of work, which seems to me like a major theme in your work. It's not exclusively this, but it's kind of the intersection of technology and spirituality. So maybe to begin our conversation, would you kind of frame up you know, 30,000 feet, the cultural moment you're living through, you know, the whole David Foster Wallace, the fish swimming along, you know, how's the water? What the heck (laughs) is water? You know, often I think because we were born, particularly for digital natives who are listening, we're born into this culture and it's just kind of, this is what it is. You have a phone, you have this digital appendage with you 24 seven, you have social media, you have this bizarre lens that now we interpret the world through of, you have clickbaiting news and it's easy to forget this is not normative throughout human history or even throughout recent history. You know, I'm thinking of Ben Sass, who was a you know Yale historian. He writes about how when historians tell the story of our time 100 years from now, when we're all dead, they will not talk, in his opinion, about political polarization or um, the phenomenon of President Trump or pick your you know controversy of choice. They will talk about the Internet. And they will talk about the shift from an industrial age to a digital age. He basically argues that we're living through an analogous kind of cultural moment to the 1870s to 1920s, the shift from an agrarian society to an industrial society where people move from these small rural communal villages into Chicago, New York, these boroughs. He writes about prohibition. I found this fascinating that, you know, we look back on prohibition and think it's just zany. Like, why would you pass an a constitutional amendment to make alcohol illegal. And he argues that, and it's really hard to do. I mean, can you imagine our political climate passing a constitutional amendment about anything, you know? And he argues that it had an 86% approval rating with the general population. Uh, And then argues it was because 
substance abuse was so bad due to the emotional trauma of this shift from agrarian to industrial wow. that it was such a widespread endemic. Society was in such a bad way yeah, that 86% of Americans said, desperate. we need to make all alcohol legal. Wow. And then he basically argues that because of the mental health crisis, that we're living through an even greater societal change, but it's compressed timeline. So instead of happening over 50 years, it's happening over, you know, 5, 10, 15. So I'd love to hear you riff on that, agree with that, disagree with that. How would you frame with that? How would you interact with that? Like, explain to uh, interpret for us kind of the cultural moment we're living through. Wow. I think that's a great way to frame it. I think I mostly agree with an interesting caveat that I'll mention. But uh, I might put it that we are living kind of atop the stack, maybe perched quite precariously, on top of a stack of three revolutions, all of which have very similar patterns. The financial revolution is the first. And it is interesting the time periods. This plays out over about 500 years. You could date it to the 16th century when the Medici's invent double entry accounting. And it, that, that method of accounting allows us to- Explain that in a, a sentence double entry accounting is just a way of uh, keeping books. We all actually take it for granted. It's, it's recording every uh, transaction in two ledgers and it allows you to actually uh, have a much more accurate picture of how a business cash flows. Um, and this allows the merchant class of Europe to take off. Uh, and it, it's actually in some ways the, the, the moving of money, money being like, think of currency, like the, you used, we used to have bills in our pockets. Uh, now it's just entries on a ledger, actually. It's the moving of wealth from land to money. And it moves money into a central place in the economy rather than a peripheral place. So, Whereas before, most of the economy was trade, mostly, right? Uh, yes. I grow a bushel of wheat, I give that yep. to you, you give me yep. a cask of beer or whatever. And, and even, not even entirely trade, because in the feudal system, it, it's this integrated society in which uh, it, it, a lot of exchange happens without any money changing. Right. It's goods change hands, So there's money, there's currency, there's coins that are, in, but it's on the, the periphery. Edge, at the edge. And now it's at the center. Exactly. So the financial revolution is a shift in where wealth is located mm -hmm. um, from land stewarded by people over time to money which floats around the world, literally floats around on the boats. Disconnected of the from land. Disconnected from land and connected initially to gold, but very quickly it becomes more of a, actually a kind of a fiction in a yeah, way. Yeah, social like construct. A, a, ledger, a ledger. Yeah. Um, so that now we have bills that just because the government prints on them, this is legal tender, we accept them as a means of exchange, unit of account, store of value. That's what money is. Um, and the culmination of this revolution is when um, we are able to actually turn it just into pure fiction. We never, I just wave my card at the reader and the card says money went back and forth. And everyone just agrees that happened. And so far, we all continue to agree of how much came and went. Just and, a little tap. And, yeah, and woo, that, there's my copy. Wow, okay. okay. So financial revolution starts 500 years ago, roughly. The industrial revolution, which SAS yep. is looking at kind of the, the workings out of that. That's yep. maybe a 250-year story, let's say, where work changes from bodies to machines. So the locus of work, just like the locus of money shifted uh, from land to money, yep. uh, the locus of wealth shifted from, from land to money. bodies to machines. Work shifts from bodies to machines. Uh, the whole world used to proceed at the speed of digestion. The way you got power was digestion, either animal or human. You ate food. Your body, through these amazing processes, turned that into energy through ATP and all that stuff we learned in you know high school biology or chemistry. Apparently not. I don't know what ATP is. So <laughs> Trust me. That's okay. It's, it's outside it's scope. Keep going. Um, 
And either you did that or your animals did it, and that gave you the energy to work in the world. Well, the Industrial Revolution uh, unlocks um, new kinds of power, uh, initially steam, then especially hydrocarbons, uh, and then to some extent even nuclear fits into this story. But, yes. but really hydrocarbons and machines are the, the engine, literally, of a shift of where work is done. Work used to be done by human beings with their animals. Now it's done mostly, initially mostly in factories has massive social effects because we have to get the people to the factories yep. because the machines can't do everything. They're more disconnected from the product. Exactly. This is where no, Marx comes in of, and the whole, exactly. like, people are alienated alienation, now, unhappy. Alienation from your work, alienation from your home. You're a cog in a machine. from your and spouse. A, yes. Because the man is out working, the woman is From your children, the, the crisis of masculinity. It. They're now tying that to fathers now are outside the home, no longer exactly. there. Exactly. So we are on top of financial plus industrial plus computational. So the computational revolution is a shift in information and information which used to be essentially in the form of, let's call it wisdom. Yeah, memory. The memory, the collective memory of people, yes, with the aid of writing and other things, but really quite embodied and, and rooted um, through information theory, uh, which is introduced in the 1920s and 30s and then gets actualized in the computational technology that really gets accelerated by the wars and then comes into its fullness in the 60s and 70s, let's say. We now live in a world where information is is not wisdom embodied in humans, but uh, kind of just pure information embodied in digital representations. Yeah. I'll insert Google. <laughs> exactly. And we live, and each of these builds on the previous one, and each of them augments the previous one, and each of them unlocks... In, in purely economic terms, unbelievable prosperity. This is the hockey stick of GDP in the history in the, of the last 500 years. The rising kind of material well-being. Material well-being, certain ways, real well-being, I, I would certainly happy to say. But all of them are a shift away from personhood. So uh, all of them involve displacing something that used to be just deeply rooted in what it was to be a person, uh, really initially very much in God's body. world. On the land, I'm in a community, doing with a, a connection to a thing, history, connection to your world. relying on other people to know who I am in the world. Now, uh, perched atop of the financial industrial computational revolution, I live this strangely distressed life. Strangely distressed because, in so many ways, our great grandparents would look at our lives and say, "You must be so happy." Yeah, like you made it. Yeah, you you got rid of like toil. You now have access to information. You have you know you have wealth beyond anyone's dreams, and that's not just the true you know the the sort of su superlatively wealthy. It's yes. just us, us. And, and anyone, frankly, who can open up a screen and watch us talk, or put in headphones and watch us talk, is wealth, in that broad category. And you would think, well, this must be awesome, and it is not at all awesome. It's and it's not it's not awesome in how we experience it as individuals, but also the societal indices of health are not going in the right direction. The happiness is in decline. Not for um, for forty years now. It's so funny, you know. We think of like survival being like a hunter gatherer tribe thing, you know, but how many people still use the language of survival? Like wow, I'm just trying I'm to trying survive, survive. to the weekend. I'm just trying <laughs> to survive this work project. I'm just trying to survive getting through this podcast interview with Andy Crouch. You know, what? <laughs> no, that's, that's hypothetical. But I, people still use this language. It's like, I'm just trying to survive. Their body is not in any danger at all for the vast majority of those people. It's an emotional, yeah. psycho, psycho kind of, that kind of a survival. Except 
Yeah, yes, completely. Uh, except that because we are actually a heart, soul, mind, strength complex. Yes. In many ways, you there are bodily effects. We are experiencing it bodily. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, and it's because each of those transitions, really revolutions, involved a massive trade or a massive trade-off. That is, we didn't just gain capacities and we didn't just relieve burdens, though we did. We gained capacities and we relieved burdens, but we also added burdens and we uh, lost freedom, you could say. <laughs> so um, the, this is why I call the innovation bargain of technology. Technology is always sold on two things. Now you'll be able to, and you'll no longer have to. You'll be able to do this thing you couldn't do before. You'll no longer have to fill in the blank. Everything, every device you ever bought, you bought for one of those two reasons or both. But they, those always come with two more, which is, yes, you'll be able to do uh, uh, this now, but you'll no longer be able to do something else. Yeah. So you'll actually lose a capability over time that you had before as this becomes fully enmeshed in your world. And yes, you'll no longer have to do things, but actually now you'll have to do something. There's a coercive element. Um, once money is circulating, you have to trade with money. You no longer have the relationship, and this was not necessarily a just relationship, but the, the relationship between a serf and a feudal lord was, was very stable in certain ways and could be relied on by both parties for both to care for the interests of the other in certain ways. I'm not saying it was a perfect arrangement, yes. but it had a kind of stability. Once money is introduced, that relationship disappears. Um, and not all for bad reasons. And people are given more autonomy, more freedom. Yep. Now more you're ability. able to move to the city to take work. Now you're able to uh, perhaps earn a wage for Do something that you which, prefer or make more money. Exactly. Yep. All kinds of options open up. But now you'll have to use money and you'll have to make money and to survive. And now you're on your own. And, and you no longer are able to see yourself as embedded in a relational web. And this is the other big... Um, effect of all this is it's a massive collapse in really what I would say are the conditions of personhood the, and uh, which is about knowing and being known. And, and riff on that, like it was really interesting reading your most recent book, which was so good. You open with an idea I want to suss out in a minute, but you talk a lot about personhood and just circle back to your passing comment a minute ago, which is in the book of heart, soul, mind, strength, yeah. complexes. So just yeah. define for us what you mean by personhood yeah. Yeah. and then go to what you were just going to say about this technology's effect on personhood. Yeah. To be a person, I, I would suggest, is to be a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love. I'm not making this up. This is from Jesus or really from Deuteronomy that by way of Jesus. That does sound familiar. Yes. It's the Shema Israel. It's the central text of Jewish life. It's the only time Jesus... The most went, important command in all the scripture the to commandment? Jesus. It's the only question Jesus was ever asked that he gave the expected answer. <laughs> every time Jesus asks a question, he says something unexpected except this time when he actually says what every rabbi would have said. Every faithful Jew has this literally written on a little scroll and put on their door, doorpost, just like it says in Deuteronomy 6. Except Jesus, actually, interestingly, in the gospel, especially in Mark, it's clearest, he, he actually adds mind. The Hebrew has three terms. He adds a term. Yes. So I'm not exactly sure why he does. Yeah, and I studied that once when I was teaching. It's like, is that a Septuagint thing? Like, did yeah. that get, and no. It just kind of shows up in the gospel. Where did that which come is from? really weird because, like, this, if you didn't memorize anything else. That's, that's one you would have down. You have this down. <laughs> and Jesus is like... Your heart, your soul, everyone knows what's next is me'od in Hebrew, uh, your strength, your muchness, your fullness. Yes. And he's like, your mind and your strength. 
<laughs> Everybody must have been like, well, yes, also your mind, but where did you get that from? And why are you inserting that into the Shema Yisrael, like of all things? But he does. So um, heart, soul, mind, strength, complex. That is, to be a person is to have all these, yeah, these are, these all are, of that. you can think of it as dimensions or aspects, but they're separable, they're distinguishable, but they're not, they're not, um, you can't isolate them in the human experience. And they all interact. So you're, you're, you think with your body. We, when we say I've got a gut feeling, that's cognition. Your, your, your vagus nerve, which goes all the way down yep. to your literal gut, is signaling to you that something is happening in your environment that you need to pay attention to, but you haven't quite figured it out. That, that's, that's mind, body, and heart. Your, your will, your desire, your, your aversion is all part of heart. That's all being activated at the moment. And the Shema says... What is all this intended for? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love God. And then Jesus adds, as the rabbis would have as well, and to love your neighbor. You're, you're designed for love. There is nothing in these three revolutions that is designed for love. I'm not saying they're bad. They've unlocked great human potential. I think they're part of the story of culture, which is the story of human beings taking God's good world and, and turning it into something very good. I have no in principle, objection to them, but I think we need to observe none of them began with the question or was animated by or or indeed progresses in the direction how do of we move toward love. how do we move toward love? In fact, really arguably quite the opposite. They're, each of them are alienating uh, events. Large swaths. Ep epochal yes. events in human history. And it, I think it goes a great deal of the way to our, toward explaining why does it feel so hard to be a person right yeah. now? It's because you live in a world that, frankly, was not designed with your flourishing as a person in mind. Insert mental health epidemic, insert alienation, insert societal collapse of politics. Yeah. I would add one more thing here, which is, in one way, this is very new. And it is right to look at our moment and feel like things are happening very fast. They're very consequential. They're upending all kinds of things. It's all true. In another way, it's extremely ancient, uh, much more so than just the three revolutions that take place over about 500 years, because I actually see what's underlying all of this as the dream of magic. Mm. The dream of magic, very old, um, in some ways traces back to the serpent's um, insinuation to Eve and Adam that if they just eat the fruit, they'll have the power the, and actually, I would say the qualities that they are made with and made for. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah. I don't think we are meant to read that and think, oh, they shouldn't be like God, and they're never meant to know good and evil. They are. They're made yeah, in the image of God. Because they're made in that. the likeness of God. Right. So That's they're the only like God. Yes. Uh, in all the ways that matter most, they are in a relationship with God that surely is going to lead them over time to understand kind of the moral contours of the world, Right. But the serpent says, the serpent insinuates they're not like God enough and they don't know enough. And rather than saying, uh, here's a, a path to growth that would grow you into the kind of people you imagine you could be. He says, oh, just eat that thing. So this is the first technological device. This is the first act of magic. Quick, easy, controllable. Exactly. It's just like your iPhone. Ah, <laughs> which... Of course, that's no coincidence it, it, that it has the image of the a, apple. Bit, a bitten apple oh, on the back right. of the thing. Like, you can't make this stuff up, right? So it's the dream. I have never tied that. Sometimes I'll talk about how technology trains us to expect life to be quick, easy, and controllable. 
but life and spiritual formation for sure is is slow, slow, difficult, difficult, and you're not really in control a mystery of it. Mystery rather than it, control. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this mistraining of tech, but I have never tied it back to the the proverbial apple, which actually wasn't an apple. It was just fruit in Hebrew. But a pomegranate. Let's, let's call it an apple. Painting, you know. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so this theme of magic, you can also trace it through the Bible's um, kind of themes of idolatry and yes. so forth. Um, but but I think which that, is very very tied. To, you're saying that's all, tied to it's like all the same. I worship this God. I do this thing, and then I get prosperity for my crops, exactly. or my wife is fertile, or whatever ancient idolatry. Right. So the the idol, uh, you know, promises a huge amount and asks very little. Uh, just a little bit of grain before the altar. A little pour out before you drink your wine. Pour a little bit out to the gods on the ground, and then but idols which and and then and then you'll have fertility you'll have safety prosperity you know, right? so huge promises very small demands the problem is idols don't actually they and the other thing is idols actually work so magic actually and i think there's a demonic element to this Absolutely. a spiritual force enters People, the world I think christians misunderstand idols as just a made-up facade yeah, and they apply it to like no priorities and they're like no these were Physical totems with demonic beings behind them. Paul is clearly yes. saying that. that. That did function initially because that's how it hooks you. Like ancient people were not so dumb as to think, just think uh, out of the blue that worshiping an image of a bull would give fertility to the, right. from the skies, you know? But there was a time in human history where a group of people gathered around a, a, a figurine of a bull and made sacrifices to it and the rains came and they hadn't come before. And, and they thought, we found we found the trick. Placate the bull. Worship it again. The thing is, idols which start out working don't keep working. They work less and less well. And they ask more and, and more. And they demand more and more. So the idol dem demands more and more while it delivers less and less until eventually it delivers nothing. Wait, are we talking about an ancient bull or Instagram? <laughs> we are talking about the same recurring You're pattern. You're saying it's the same The same phenomenon. pattern. Just... Just make this minor offering and you'll get this amazing result. Oh, well, it's not working so well. So maybe you need to up the ante. The God is a little displeased. Make, spend more of your time on this. I'm sure you can get that result again. Oh, it's normal. It's not working so well. Well, so you need to sacrifice a little more. Come on. Are you serious? Are you serious about this worship or not? And the thing which started out promising almost everything, asking almost nothing, eventually delivers nothing, demands everything. And what is the maximum thing a false god could ask you to give up. Yes, son. That is a very good answer because most people say your life. No, it's your I'm child's life. Like, oh, no, life. not your own life. Yeah. Your child's life. One of the main reasons that God sent Israel into exile is they began to worship to join Moloch, yeah. the pagan neighbors in the sacrifice of children because the ultimate thing every idol says is, well, if you really want my benefits, show me Give me the most valuable thing, which is not your own life. Give me the sacrifice of your child. Of course, this could have no relevance to our own world. We wouldn't, and, and, and we wouldn't it often be... works. I remember sitting in seminary. There's that obscure passage where David and his armies are fighting against, and they're winning, and the pagan kin sacrifices his son on the firstborn gates, and it says Israel's army was immediately repelled. And I remember my seminary professor saying there was a demonic, power and principality that sacrifice unleashed in Israel was actually defeated by that. So it works until it doesn't work, but it literally costs blood. Exactly. Exactly. And the life of our children. And we have 
amazingly sophisticated ways of averting our eyes from this, but this is absolutely our own world also, our own world. And we think, oh, we aren't those pagan superstitious people, but in fact, our idols also tear children from their parents, cause parents, in some cases, Disembody physically people. to mutilate. The Sabbath practice is a four-week experience designed to be run in your church, small group, or community that combines teaching, conversation, and spiritual exercises to introduce you to this ancient discipline for life with God. If you come on the Sabbath practice, you will not just learn about the Sabbath, you will practice the Sabbath. The end goal is to integrate Sabbath into your rule of life in order to arrange your life around God. This offering is completely free thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who give monthly to Practicing the Way. Available now at practicingtheway.org. So now let's move from that to, okay, so you have this, this, this human kind of meta theme or motif of magic. It goes all the way back to the garden imagery and now is like the newest app or whatever, like magic, high promises, low demand at first and then. So you suss out this idea in your most recent book of the difference between devices and instruments and you tie that to magic. Can you just yeah, yeah, go yeah. there? Yes, absolutely. So here's where you often run into some resistance when you try to tell this story. People are like, well, the thing is, like the ancient, those, those pagan religions, they don't, they don't work. Like that magic doesn't work. Our, but it's, our it's, stuff all, actually, it's all fake, you right? know. Our stuff actually works, right? And, and uh, you know, we can actually like fertilize the ground and have it be more fruitful, like nitrogen fixing and all that kind of stuff. We know how that works now. So the- Your Wendell Berry in my mind saying no. Well, <laughs> so there is a question, will it keep on working? Yes. It, yeah, sure, the idol worked at first. We're only a hundred years into the story of technology as I would define it. And that's like a, a blink of an eye in the history of human religion, if this is a new religion. And the planet, yes. Exactly. So what are the law, the generational consequences? We're not there yet. But I would actually say it does work in certain ways because it, technology is actually two things combined. Technology, I would say, is science plus a dream. Science plus a dream. Science is the patient, um, disciplined, human, humble, Patient, humble, disciplined human examination of the world as it actually is. And it was led in, in its modern form very notably by Christians yes. by, and others of faith, Jewish also. Um, people who believed in a creator God, people who believed in the rationality of the cosmos, the intelligibility of the cosmos. Many Muslims early on, right? Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the mathematics of the Muslim world in particular, as well as observational uh, kind of uh, techniques developed in that world. Um, James Clerk Maxwell, who, uh, you know, Maxwell's equations of electro, uh, electromagnetism. I'm going to nod um, my head like I know what the heck you're talking about. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Maxwell's equation, yep. He founds the Cavendish Laboratory um, at uh, Cambridge University and has inscribed over the entrance in Latin, Psalm 110, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord. So science The biblical began, theology of science. Began with this, uh, there's a, an amazing book about it called The Penultimate Curiosity that traces the way science and religion actually have been friends. Almost the whole history of, of inquiry into the world, there are two ways of inquiry into the world. And when you inquire patiently, humbly, in a disciplined way, you discover the goodness and the, and the beautiful intelligibility of the world that is meant for us to use. Yeah. So the science side of technology, A, really does work like at a, Electromagnetic level, Maxwell's equations actually describe reality and give us access to a kind of power in the world that we're meant to have, I would say. 
but it's plus a dream. The dream is magic. And the result of science plus a dream, so when we started- And when you say the dream is magic, it's just an easy, quick solution click to get rid of our pain and- When we started asking ourselves, gosh, if we could figure out how, how the world works, what would we do with it? We thought magic. Because in the not Western- love. Not love. Francis Bacon, writing at the dawn of the alignment, glimpses what might what we might come to know in the next few centuries. And he says, well, what we need to do is relieve the human estate. He sees life as just full of toil and labor. He's like, well, we need to like lift the burdens from human beings. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, you and I benefit tremendously Absolutely. from the way machines lifted the burden. But, but the, and then Arthur C. Clarke comes along in the middle of the 20th century and famously, famously says, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable yes. from what? What word Magic. does he choose? magic because that's our dream we're like oh if we now know how the world works i could just flip a switch and a light would come on i can push a button and i'm no longer cold i don't have to chop down a tree and cut it up and drag it in the house and start a fire and yeah yep so we thought here's what we'll do once we know we'll do magic and this gave rise to what Albert Borgman, who's the philosopher, who was yes. most influenced. Absolutely. Focal practices. I love his. What's, what's his book, Living in the Focus? Is that the popular read one? Maybe. Yeah. 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 It's, I love uh, that. Yeah. He has a couple of books. The Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life is the uh, almost impenetrable one. Yes. I've no, read that one. All the yes. really good ideas. <laughs> I think I read uh, the like Sabbath reading one. Yeah. Good, good. Um, I, <laughs> uh, Borgman, in his first book, I mean, it's amazing sometimes how lives of people who are really influential, they, they just see something so important at the beginning of their careers and they spend the rest of it just working it out. And he coined this term, the device paradigm. And this word, he, use, he appropriates or uses this word devices really to specifically refer to the form of, of science plus a dream that allows us to simulate a kind of magic where I press a button and the thing happens. Uh, and, and the way I might put it is a device allows you to make a difference in the world without having to become different in any way. Whoa. So you remove formation, you remove character, virtue from power. Exactly. So the power to make music is a human power, an amazing human power. But it requires an instrument. Requires, well, in a strict sense, it uh, just starts with your body. Okay, yes. every culture extends the body through Singing, clapping, whatever. Right, right. So yeah, you can just sing, clap, clap, stomp, and dance, and you've made amazing music, and it can be good all on its own. But human beings extend that. And, and when we think of this in other domains, we think of it, we call it tools. Tools are just extensions of human beings. And an instrument, we think of that in music, is an extension of the human ability to make music. Um, to play the instrument, or indeed to use any tool, requires me to become something different. And then it will amplify that power and then I or have that virtue new... or that it will channel that. But it has to come from you. Exactly. I'm, I, you can't take the human out of the loop. Right. So if you sit down at a classical grand piano, it doesn't, it's not a player piano. It just, it waits for someone to play. But the person who plays has to have gone through this quite Years long of practice process, and formation. Right? You have to become the kind of person who can play it. Right. So you have to become different in order to make the difference in the world called piano. But Apple Music. Exactly. You just got to push a button. And music plays. And so we now have more music being played in the ears of people in the Western world than any, any society in history, if by play you mean you press play and, and, music, and tuned 
the pitch sound starts to play. And I would imagine, I don't know this, but less and less and less and music being... I am absolutely positive. Less and less music being played, if by that you mean a musician in, uh, in community with other people because it's a deeply communal act, is actually bringing into the world the gift of tunes and pitch and I'm laughing because my, one of my sons is a musician and he's, and he's young, he's a high schooler, but he's learning. He's actually making really beautiful kind of electronica music. But he, you know, using GarageBand or Logic or whatever, and you just push a button now, and it makes this incredible riff and arpeggio, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. He's actually making things, but yeah. he's not learning these instruments. He doesn't have to. That I like not that old, and I had to actually learn guitar to play guitar. He just has to like put in the plug and push a button. So, so this is the device instrument. It is probably a continuum. You know, I would put GarageBand somewhere on the... It's not clear cut. It's not... I don't yeah, because GarageBand, you have to learn that skill. You have to move it exactly. up logic. So, you have to build. You have to know at least one instrument. He knows keys. Right. I, I think... And I would say, uh, if he is to progress to what in, in music we, we can, I think, legitimately call mastery level yes. performance, he actually will... He, he will neurologically change. His body will acquire new skills... And I actually see GarageBand as closer to the instrument, and even though you can use it as a device. Yes. And in fact, this whole computational layer of our world, all these screens, at the end of the day, they are blank rectangles with the ability to glow with anything we ask them to glow with. And and the interesting thing about our phones, our computers, our tablets, is they can either be the ultimate device, that is, they can just do magic for us, and you can you can never learn to play anything, and you can your life can be full of music. Or they can be the ultimate instrument. You can write a book on one. Exactly. You can design a house. You can, yeah. And, but in order to do that, you will have to choose a way of formation that frankly is against the grain of, the, of what the technological world presents to us as the good life, which is the magical life. Which is power without virtue, without love. Power without dependence, uh, you know, ability without virtue. Uh, John Tyson says abundance without relationship. It's all that wrapped together. And every moment we spend chasing that, we are undermining our ability to be persons, to bring into the world the good we were made to bring into the world, to actually create using the, the science that gives us the intermediate layer of computation. And, and we all know, and, and I think there is this spiritual thing, there's this lure away from that engaged life to the disengaged life that we are now constantly tempted from to active talk. to passive from difficult to easy so when i'm hearing you say if the if the question i'm really asking is in what ways is the technological or in your language computational kind of moment we're living in forming or even malforming us at the core of our being i'm hearing you say it's it's deracidating our like experience of being a person, a body and a place with a people where you live in an interweb kind of thick life of community. You're connected to a place. Your identity is there. You're connected to your body, to your spirit, to God. It's, it's robbing us of that. Instead, we're random people moving every six months on working over Zoom and email. And it's, it's undermining our formation into people of love. Because where before you had to become a person of love and virtue in general in order to have power in the world, now you can shortcut that whole process, get to power, and then at a societal level, then you have power, people with power who don't have virtue, and it's a disaster, as it has always been through all of human history. Exactly. So let's, let's, now, let's now shift gears 
I want to walk through a few practices that we are working on on our end. I just want to get you to riff on them. You said something really interesting in our pre-conversation. You said that Christians often want to turn practices or spiritual disciplines uh-huh. in more uh-huh. common language from instruments into devices. Okay, first off, just a word on that, and then I want to ask you a few specific practice questions. So if the dream of the device is I can make a difference or see a difference without having to be different, be made different, be formed, um, there is this old recurring pattern in Christian history, and, and I mean, it's just the history of human religion in a way, where we take practices that are meant to be formative and we degrade them into something that feels like a magical device, like just it's so many different levels. I mean, uh, you've got your Bible, just open it up to some random page, put your finger down and God will speak to you just magically. Like it's divination really. Yes. Um, rather than, no, I'm going to have to patiently apprentice myself to this text and go into the mystery of my life with God and Somehow God will speak, but not in any controllable way and in a way that requires a deep change in me, right? So, Or I think of how the reformers were working against sacramentalism and the high exactly. middle ages. And the Eucharist, which started as a meal around a table with a community where you had to be right with that community before you came to the table. Your confession of sin was not like, there was no lattice. No it wasn't saying sorry to God in your mind. It was like, I'm in person. Confess. That somehow became... I come to church, I take a bite, stick out my and tongue. if I just stick out my tongue, and if I do that long enough, I will be magically turned into a Christ-like person. And same with baptism, which when Paul's writing Romans... I think same with preaching in the Protestant oh, tradition. Oh, watch watch out. Totally, though. Oh, totally. And I'm a preacher. I'm, I'm pro-preaching, but, um, but not the magical in some approach. Sense. Listen to this six-week series on anxiety, and you will no longer be an anxious person. Uh, if only it was that easy. Yes. It, in some sense, I think the reality is, and I, I think we should include ourselves in this as much as we wish we were different. Most of us show up on, if we show up on Sunday mornings, uh, <laughs> hardly can be And if we show up in bodies. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, ex- well, totally. But let's just stick with Sunday morning and then extend it to the mediated version. We show up looking for a kind of a spiritual device. Like, I hope that the worship band plays in such a way that I feel that that connection to God that I felt at some key moment in my life, that's why I keep coming back, is to find that magic again. But I'm not here to be formed through a difficult path of humble, patient, you know, development. I'm here for someone to hit the right button and start the smoke machine or start that chord sequence that arouses a certain emotional response. Or have response. the encounter moment or have the brilliant or insight the in word. the sermon. Or, yeah, different traditions, different, yeah. And then when you take away the embodied, uh, to mention that, and now you're just looking on Zoom, no wonder people gravitate to the people who are the best magicians, the people who make things, who are the best at making things seem to happen through media. They've got the charisma. They've got the just, they've got the whole panoply of people behind the scenes making the magic appear on the screen. They've got the, the formulaic most spirituality, do and, these three things. And if you actually tried to mediate the truly most formative movements in human history, like the monastic movement, you have hung out in monasteries. Yes. Imagine trying to make a fa- a true video about what happens there. <laughs> it would be, it's the most boring, boring video Cannot ever. be done, yeah. Cannot be done. And, and that's the, actually the most formative thing. 
but we turn on our screen and we're like, boy, I hope my local pastor can at least do enough magic that I don't switch and go to some famous pastor like John Mark Comer and watch him instead. And, and every pastor is trying to do this thing that cannot be done, which is give people a device that makes them close to God. But over and over in Christian history, we, we look for spiritual practice as a device when in fact it is, these are all instruments. They can only be uh, played by a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex designed for love who is willing to apprentice and develop a skill and, and for whom the first times through playing it will be very halting, very embarrassing, not something you'd want a lot of people to see happen uh, for me fast. Not even all that rewarding at first. Oh my gosh. Well, fasting for me is the ultimate example. <laughs> not, I, there is, so I had a fast for Lent one year. John Mark, you'll be very pleased to hear. I felt called by God. I'm a tea drinker. I've, I'm a British style tea drinker. I felt that- You are from Boston. I am from Boston, New England. Oh, I thought you got rid of the tea though, actually. So <laughs> yeah, maybe that's, that's your countercultural move. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Make America Great Britain again is my slogan. Uh, so um, I decided that for Lent, I would give up milk in my tea. I know that you are it's a major sacrifice. The spiritual giant the that I am. The level of your spiritual yeah, my surrender. Asceticism is just... I just I just feel like I'm not even a Christian anymore, Andy. Like I thought I was a serious Christian. Now, <laughs> and four days into Lent, tell me, I find myself furtively because my family knows I have this discipline. I've told them for a little bit of accountability. I find myself furtively 7 a.m. going to the refrigerator and putting milk in my. T- I can, I just cannot bear life without. Like fasting just reveals, I am, I am such, I am not even in elementary school. And What's the Richard Foster line? Fasting reveals the things that most control us. Oh my gosh. And no spiritual benefit to be seen. Yes. It's like a four-year-old who's trying to play, in Suzuki we call it Mississippi hot dog, the pattern you play. It's clumsy, you miss the notes, it doesn't sound good, no one would pay you to play that. But that is the path. Like, yeah. But you're on the path now, but you're using it as an instrument. And, Bec- and the goal there isn't even to get it right. It's to get it into you. You know what I mean? It's where the instrument analogy is beautiful, but it breaks down because and since your body is, it's not to disagree, it's Paul's whole thing, the instruments of your body, his whole, you right. know, his whole line in Romans. But how do you right. take your body yes, and make yes, it yes. an instrument yeah. for God to play through you? Exactly. <laughs> Because really, ultimately, um, we are all, all, it's really weird. For all our tools, all our techniques, all our technology, we are what the world needs to flourish. Jesus, it's really interesting. He never used any extension of himself with the possible exception of stepping out on a boat, perhaps to get the natural sound amplification that the water would provide. But basically, so Jesus never wrote, wrote writing is one of the basic extensions of human communication. Jesus never wrote anything down. Now his followers did, but he himself did not. He used no media where media is defined as something that comes between the middle of two people, substitutes for some aspect of human experience, but allows for some amplification. So you and I are having basically an unmediated conversation. I think in a but certain- But people will experience but this we're mediating media. It so that people can join us in it. And that's, I have no problem with us doing that, but just notice that Jesus never did it. Why? Because a full human life lived entirely in relationship with the Father, the Father in the power of the Spirit. 
needs no extension to have the needed effect. If you, if you were fully, and Jesus is the only human being, it's why his disciples did have to write things down, because they weren't, they weren't him, even though they were following in his way. But he who was the way did not need any tools. He, did, he probably just had one cloak. <laughs> he didn't need money. He has the money to Judas. He's like, hey, you can keep it. He surely knows the risk of handing it to that member of the 12. He's like, yeah, you, you keep track of that. Um, doesn't need to write because all we actually need, the ultimate instrument in the world is myself, which is so ridiculous to say because I'm like, this is not enough, right? But, but actually that like a fully formed human life would be all you would need. Wow. Practicing the Way is a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Tracy from Cape Town, South Africa, and I'm part of this community. To join myself and others in The Circle or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org. Let me talk about a few practices and have you apply it to that. You mentioned scripture a few minutes ago or how we approach the Bible and sometimes approaching the Bible as a device, not an instrument. Yeah. I mean, here's a, here's an intermediate example. Like the worst example would be divination, like just opening it up, expecting somehow to be able to magically extract insight, you know, like astrology or horoscope or something. Um, there's an intermediate term, which is very subtle. Which is more common than I think people more think. More common. In particular, in certain streams of the church. You That's know? fair. I'm just going to open my Bible and see. And, and... surely God will just like jump out. Um, but here's a, a subtler one, because I think this is an attractive idea. People are like, well, the Bible is like a manual. You know, the creator made the world. Here's the manual. But I want to point out, this is a industrial slash computational metaphor. Yes. It's, it's a metaphor drawn from the world of complex machines or maybe computers or maybe software programs. Um, and, and so there's this idea, there's this very complicated system. And this will explain to you how to work the complicated system. And when you learn everything in the manual, the thing will work, right? So RTFM is a not safe. And made read, your life better. Read the freaking manual. Yes. Is every kind of technologist's answer like, look, it's in the manual. Like, it, the world works or this thing works. It's just you don't know how it works. Read the manual. And that is a very subtle technologization of the spiritual life. How people approach scripture. That says the world is basically, my life I mean, is, I was taught that, just for the record. I was taught through my whole life by the Bible well is the manual. Well-intentioned, yeah. good people. This is your manual. Just live by this and you'll do well. And isn't that the... That's the core. And often by do well, my brain interpreted that as you'll have a good life without pain. Exactly. And it's just, first of all, it's just not what it is. This book is full of confusing It's not, it's not a book. It, well, it's right, a library. It's library Just for books. the record. Exactly. It's not a manual. If it's a manual, it's 66. <laughs> and they contradict each other. Proverbs says, if you obey the rules and follow the way of wisdom, you will have a prosperous life. Turn a few, few pages to Job. He lives, follows the rules, walks away with him, has a disaster happen. And like... Turn a few pages to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes and he's deconstructing his faith over it. <laughs> exactly. And it's all in it's there. It's there on purpose. Exactly. Side by side by side. Exactly. So 
it's n- it is not that because the world is not a machine. Yeah. Machines are are microsystems within God's world. They're controllable. For, which are controlled. And for, knowable. For which there is a value for the word control that actually applies. But only within mechanical systems can you have control. And and the Newtonian conception of the universe was it was a machine. It was billiard balls bouncing off each other by ruled governed laws. If we could just figure out all the laws of nature, and then we, if we knew the antecedent conditions, we would then be able to predict the you know, trajectory of anything, if we knew the right amount of force, right? It was this picture, and, and the world was a clock. The God is a great clockmaker. The universe is a, a magnificent clock. Not true. Quantum mechanics comes along because it, there's some problems that Newtonian mechanics can't solve. I'm totally out of my depth, but I am married to a physicist, so she's you telling me this like, is direct. How do you know this stuff? Like, <laughs> uh, Quantum mechanics comes along and says, no, at a deeper layer of reality that we have to understand in order to account for things we see in the world, the world is not described by law-governed mechanical action. It's described probabilistically with the involvement of observers, crazily enough. Relationship. Relation, relationally, there are the some... The universe interpre- is relational. Some interpretations of the quantum mechanics say they're actually... The best way to understand the world is as relational, a relational starting point that generates individuality rather than individuals that have relationships. Wow. Not everyone agrees with that interpretation of quantum mechanics, but it is a, it is a way to read what we now see... The world is not a machine, and therefore, there is no manual. It's not controllable. It's not programmable. You don't hack the right formula, and then boom, 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 boom. Yep. And, and your life is not a machine, and other people definitely are not machines. And so you will not find a manual, and you will not find a device that if you just press the right button or the right buttons in the right sequence or you know acquire sufficient knowledge, you will then have kind of a control and power. And that's not to discount the wisdom that is embedded in scripture. Like one of the things I love to talk about, you won't realize there's way less controversy around canonization and what mm-hmm. books made it in no, than right. Dan Brown and others would like and deconstructionists would like you to believe. It was it was very little controversy. It was fairly obvious. Because the other gospels had Jesus like little eleven year old Jesus making little clay pigeons and then killing them yes, just for and the they were written like, two hundred years just... later and they were not I mean yes. But what people don't realize, there were a few books over which there was fierce you know, controversy. And people don't realize, as I understand it, the most hotly contested book in the canonization of what we now call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was the book of Proverbs. And which is like, how could you not like Proverbs? Like Proverb of the day keeps the devil away. And their logic was, this is very ancient when they were forming that corpus. Wow. Their logic was, if you read the book of Proverbs as a book of promises, wow. as a manual, as many people do, then it's not true. Oh my goodness. Train up a child in the way Man, they shall go when, when they're old. It, you know, um, or, you know, diligent hands make for plenty. But there's lots of people that have worked their tail off and right. due to oppression or injustice right. or disease or whatever, have known nothing but blight. If you read it as general principles about the human condition, wise people live this way and 80% of the time it produces right. this result. Right. Proverbs is an incredible collection of wisdom, ancient and modern, Christian, yep. Jewish, and beyond. Yep. If you read it as a manual, a man. timeless truth, this is God's deposit, the manual, it's just not true. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, so to say that it's not a manual is not to say that it's not full of truth. It's not that no, it's full no, no, of completely. wisdom that we shouldn't live by. I mean, both of you are, both of you and I are thoroughly orthodox in our approach to scripture. But one of the things that I had to come to realize is that the, the kind of evangelical way of reading the Bible that I was brought up is not actually the orthodox way of reading the Bible. And it was setting me up for a crisis of faith because it was 
making claims about the Bible that the Bible never makes for itself, that Jesus, who has, I think, the highest view of scripture of any writer in the Bible, he never makes about it. And it was trying to turn it into something that it's not. I remember, you know, Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, talking about, he calls this the golden tablets view, which is kind of your manual idea. That's that right. This thing just fell out of heaven. It's golden. He's like, just to clarify, that's what Mormons believe. That's not what Christians have ever believed about the Bible. That's not what Christian, that's not what this is. Yeah. And uh, so when we approach it as a device, this magical thing, it's just a setup for disillusionment, you know? When in fact, it is an instrument. It, in some sense, I think in principle, if, if we were to truly live in total communion with God, as Jesus did, I mean, we would want the Bible because it's the record of God's saving acts and grace and all that. We would, and the competing of wisdom. But, but we and... wouldn't need it in a sense, like, you know, but since we're not at all in that state of grace, we actually desperately need an extension of ourselves that, that acts back on us as we interact with it, that, that humbles us every time we engage with it, that we have to approach with a sense of mystery rather than magic. I think this is important because people sometimes think I'm... Or mastery. Yes, yes, exactly. Magic and mastery are, are very, very connected. I, for years, I wanted to master the Bible. Yeah, I have a master of divinity. I have, I have so far failed at that, <laughs> but I, I have fallen greater in love with the mystery of it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's so much more than anything that can be mastered. It, it's an invitation into relationship with all these people who are so different from us and sometimes very annoying to us, and, uh, but also this God who is actually so different from what we expect and sometimes very annoying to us. Uh, but follow this way apprentice yourself to all these texts, approach them with curiosity and not knowing what they say at a time and not expecting them to initially seem at all to speak to your need for control in the moment. And you will be formed into a different kind of human being. Yeah. I'm thinking about Jesus, who obviously was a scripture teacher, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say oh, to I you. Yeah. And then the quote, he's so thoroughly immersed in scripture. It's so saturated his mind, his imagination, his heart but he's recognizing you're misreading it. You're missing it. You're missing the heart. You have to go deeper. So the, the move of Jesus in farther away, deeper in to the mystery. Now let's suss out. Um, let's, I would love to hear you talk about the practice of community. My, your most recent book, um, if we're looking for, was such a pleasant read. Oh my God, it's right on my back deck in summer. It was just wonderful. But my favorite chapter by far was your chapter on household. Would you kind of, where you kind of revive this Greco-Roman idea that permeates the New Testament uh, and early church kind of ecclesiology or model of church of household, would you kind of just explain that for people that are new to this concept and yeah. what is household and how does that apply to this conversation of personhood and embodiment versus disembodiment? Yeah. Relational view of the world. Yeah. If we live in a world that has kind of made us all into very atomized individuals. We need a way back into the kind of community. Atomized meaning just isolated. You're off by yourself. You're doing your thing. Not even molecules anymore. Um, we, need, we need something that, that connects us deeply to other persons. And, and ultimately, we need to be truly known. I mean, this is what we almost long for. It is also what we almost fear because yes. um, we, we fear the shame. Yeah, we have known. that push-pull dynamic. Um, but... On the other side of being known is, uh, in any healthy uh, relationship, is actually the freedom from shame. That is, I am known and loved. As I am. As in spite Not of the Not the performance of exactly. my identity, but my real self. Exactly. And I think the context for that, that we have to find a way to rebuild, 
I do not think the family is enough in the, um, with all respect to our friends there, the, in the focus on the family sense, which generally, honestly, Means narrows the down family. to a, a, a mother-father pair if it's a traditional family and some number of children. And the family is instituted by God, is an incredible blessing, and we should do everything we can to strengthen that unit, that But molecule. family in biblical theology is not mom and dad and three kids. Exactly. Not so Old this Testament, is, not New Testament. That's not what they mean by family. This is where we have to start thinking much broader because, first of all, it's from the beginning in, in that world and life view, intergenerational, multi-generational. So the, the parents, the grandparents are very much still around in the ancient world. They are usually in your home. Yes. Um, and and uh, you have actually a sense of being part of a way longer tradition and you know the names of all those people. It's why genealogies are in the Bible. Can you imagine if I asked you, what's your genealogy? Could you do Matthew 1? Could you go back, you know, 28 generations of... I. I, I run out after my grandparents. I, I, with some effort, I could remember some of my great-grandparents' names, but not all. So we live this tremendously compressed, constrained kind of family life. But the ancient world had this thing, and the Greco-Roman world in particular, called households, which were actually not just intergenerational family. So you have the Jewish concept of the intergenerational family, exactly. village and, life, and aunts, uncles. And traditional, yeah. almost yep. every. Uh, Roman yep. culture, Greek That's culture, true. all had that. But then the household idea was on top the of that. The household idea emerges in more complex societies where you end up with a, a nucleation around a, a mother-father pair, the pater familia. Some kind of an world. anchor yep. nuclear so, family. And it's a patriarchal world, and I'm not saying we adopt all of this for us, nor did the early Christians adopt all of its features. But just to think about how or it Or they used them and subverted them, completely. like in the household codes in Paul's letters. Exactly. So just thinking about how it worked culturally, you've got the, the father, the mother, the children, and maybe some older relatives in the house. But then you have uh, actually what we would now call economic relationships, which is a word that comes from household. Oikonomia is the, the rule of the household, the oikos. We get economics from household because the economic life of the ancient world happened through these relational networks that were that we are also based in this thing we call patronage and uh, allowed people to be connected to one another in very thick ways, sometimes literally living under the roof of a paterfamilias. And and so a whole group of people, some related biologically, others related economically. Because there was a family business basically in our exactly. language that was run out of the house, not in exactly. an office complex 20 miles away. All these people are part of the household. Now, to just jump to our moment, what I, in this book, am exploring, and, in, and my wife and I are actually literally living right now, which we could talk about, is what if we started to rebuild these bigger than family households, household settings. And by that, I primarily mean, though not exclusively, literally under one roof where other people have the keys to your door. Yeah. I, I, this is something I was thinking about recently. I'm just I, glad that you said we still have a door. So as long as we can still have a door, door, I'm very open. <laughs> no, because um, for uh, intimacy, for trust, for marital relationships to happen in all, all their dimensions... There is a kind of uh, interiority that's needed for the family, yeah. for the parent-child relationship. So I'm not all saying commune, yeah. but, but I do think there's, there's a way in which I think uh, an index of relational health in your life is how many people have the keys to your house and the freedom with appropriate boundaries, of course, but the freedom to come and go. And, and another way to put it is, who knows, who would, who would know if you died in the middle of the night? Wow. First of all, 
maybe your kids would know now, but your kids are going to grow up and leave the home. This is part of human development. They grow and they leave. They form families on their own. You're, maybe you and have a spouse. And our age, they probably leave, leave, and go somewhere else. Uh, that's right. Maybe you have a spouse, but more than half of American adults do not have a spouse. And there's all kinds of reasons why they don't, and not everyone is going to marry. And Jesus himself said not all, all of his followers would marry. So who's going to know you well enough that if you don't awake in the morning, they're going to check on you? That when you fall asleep, they move a little more quietly because they know you're asleep. That's the most elemental level of being known. That in the rhythms of my days, there's someone else who is present enough to me that they are aware that I am and that if something is wrong, they pick up on it, including things that I would rather they not know are wrong because I need to be known like that. Because when you're known, you can't curate people's perception of yourself. Exactly. There's this, no media. They perceive you as you are. Right. And the, I think most Americans, that sounds really scary. I also think if we're honest, it sounds like something we desperately would love to have if we could trust other people enough. Yeah. But the reality is you don't actually grow to trust people enough unless you jump in and, and build it. Yes. So for 20 years, my, my wife and I, with our children as they grew, raised them in a single family house that looks like the picture of American dream, yes. honestly. And we're grateful for our house and had a, a good life together in that house. Very close to her parents, so an intergenerational kind of connection, which was intentional. This year, we have had the chance to move back to the city where we met, Boston, and move in with friends who live upstairs. I hear their every footfall because it's an old wood-framed house. I, I, I used to live on one of the top floors of these houses. I now live on the bottom floor. I mean, there is nothing... I would imagine you want to live on the top floor. There is no movement I do not perceive in the... The unit above us where Simon and Wenwella, their two uh, teenage kids and her mother all live. And Catherine and I have moved in on the first floor and we rent a unit from them. Now we do have our own door. However, at the moment, because we moved in recently, there actually aren't curtains on the front and back doors and those place porches where the rest of the household comes yes. and goes. And John Mark, I cannot tell you like what an insult it is to my American desire for privacy and autonomy to be like, they can see me in my house. I'm not doing anything in my house that shouldn't be seen. Uh, you know, we have a bedroom, you know, that's private. But just like my daily life is lived with this semi-permeable membrane in a way to my fr they're my friends. I trust these people. They're deep, deep friends and fellow believers. Why would I not want my life open to them? In fact, I do and I don't. I, it's attraction avoidance. Like, yes, I want to be known, but oh, but let me make sure I can close the curtains. But in fact, I desperately, uh, it's been the most life-giving thing. To walk out the back on the back porch and here's my neighbor and we talk for even just a moment and I'm just known in this unfiltered, unrehearsed, unperforming way um, and we're invited into their lives, into the pain of their lives as well, the joy of their lives, vice versa. And I, and, and I happen to be gifted with a spouse and now my children are out of the house. That was a beautiful set of relationships, but they are properly no longer in under my roof. The, my whole life, I, I might outlive my wife. My whole life, I'm going to need that kind of relationship. All the more so, all the people who have bought into the, have been bought and sold in the technological story into a life of isolation, we've got to create these households. And so, I mean, first off, it's interesting. A household is not just a concept or idea. It's not even just a set of relationships. It's an actual physical place. Has to be. So like for any architects or real estate developers listening, we need you. you like we redesign. The American, both the urban 
you know, apartment tower thing and suburban are both designed for atomization. None of them are designed for households, for community, for multi-generational. We need an arc, literal architectural reimagination in order, I think, to live into a vision of human flourishing that's based on reality and based on Jesus. But what I'm hearing you talk about is not just like, like I think the American movement toward community is like go to church and be in a small group. Great things. But what you're talking is about is like a multi-generational, communal, doing life together, proximity to each other, whatever, however that works out with your living situation and building yep. your house or whatever, something so much more as that, that's how you take a device. I come to small group, I have community. Again, this thought of rant on small groups and turn it into an instrument. This is how I let God play through me, you know? All right, last, let me hear you talk about Sabbath. I love to hear you talk about Sabbath. And uh, I'm thinking, we're thinking a lot about Sabbath right now. Uh, go wherever you want with this. Just talk to us. What's, what is Sabbath in your life? What's, what's your heart for it? Well, Sabbath has been one of the gifts of my life. I got to college, not from a really act, church active family, nominal Protestant family, but I had come to faith in high school. I got to college and thought, I'm either going to have a Sabbath or I'm not, and I think I should have one. So I started practicing it first day of Cornell University, which I only mentioned to say, in our U.S. context, this is Ivy League, this is high pressure, this is performance, this is achievement, and no one yeah. was no comment for freshmen no, at no your college to practice Sabbath. Was like on Sundays, I just do no work, I do no homework. So Sundays were very lonely because everybody else is in the library, like cramming for the week. Right? You you party Friday and Saturday. And then Sundays, you're like, oh, my gosh, I got to get my work done. So it's actually the hardest working day of the week at most Ivy League schools is Sunday because you're like, you're sort of, you're under the gun. And I, I felt with, with the wisdom of the church kind of backstopping me, like there's something about the eighth day, the Lord's Day. I don't, you know, I think Sabbath can be taken other days in a seven-day rhythm. Yes. But I took the first day and nobody else did. So, and yet it was this just life-saving thing. Uh, so I've practiced it my whole life. My wife had done the same thing in college as it happened. That's really rare. I'm, I'm frankly, I'm kind of shocked. It, we have hardly ever met anyone like that. That would be really rare now. And Sabbath is kind of in the air a little bit uh, of the Protestant stream of the church now last I just, decade. I happened to meet a person getting a PhD in physics at Harvard University who every Sunday laid down all her work and worshiped and feasted and rested. Wow. And so when we married, of course, we kept doing it. And of course, our kids grew up doing it. And they would now say, actually, my daughter went to the same university I did, and she was the biggest evangelist for Sabbath in, among her friends. And she was called at, at Cornell. The, the People would say, you're the only happy person I know at Cornell. No way. I, I'm not making this up. People are like, you're, you're actually happy. And she would immediately say, it's because of Jesus. I wish that's true. No, she would say, it's because of Sabbath. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's also Jesus, right? Um, but... For her, the proximate cause was she had inherited this from us and kept it and still does. Um, so just at a personal level, I mean, of all the spiritual disciplines, it's the only one I can say to some extent, I, I've kept this from my youth, but not in a legalistic way in a like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> like in my youth, I found this and grace found me through this practice. And, and then I've added to it the sabbatical year. So every seven years, I basically quit my job. And, and I plan for it ahead of time that I'm going to have a, for it. Yeah. A, a significant really amount of time free from work 
And at four, year 49, I guess I'll have some kind of jubilee. I haven't worked that out yet. <laughs> but the Sabbath ladder of day, daily rest, because in a way, work and sleep day and night are yes. meant to be. A, a, mm-hmm. There's a rhythm there. The rhythm, the gleaning practices in which every day we leave work undone so that other people can have good work to do. I try to do that every day, every week. I take a break every seven years and then. I trust I will have a kind of jubilee of celebration when when my life's work is done. You know what it makes really hard to do is self-pity. I I think we've we've lived through just so many like tragic, um, traumatic failures of leadership uh, in the church in particular. And I often feel like what's behind them is the indulgence in self-pity, namely, my life is so hard. Uh, there are so many demands on me. I mean, this we, we have literal verbal testimony from certain individuals who are very prominent, who justified behavior to people they were abusing at that moment with this kind of language. And yeah. You know, I, it, my life is just so difficult. I, there are so many expectations. And it's, it's basically at the root of his self-pity. Um, therefore, I deserve to take this that is not mine, whether it's money or intimacy or whatever. And... When you really have a practice of Sabbath and you are never more than six days away from a feast, from rest, from a nap, from the gift, it's just, I mean, I'm not saying I don't want to end up self-pitying, but it's harder. Like, yeah. you're like, ah, no, actually there's joy coming. You like, are really never soon. more than six days away. What a great line. So it's also, do we have time for the yeah, other thing Yeah, no, go. <laughs> um, it's also absolutely essential to the creative life. If your life involves making anything that doesn't exist yet in the world, which in some ways every human life ought to, whether it's children or yes. bo- books or whatever. All of work is created. All of work should have an element yeah. of, of actually speaking into being something that is not. Um, you need Sabbath because it's the pattern of creativity. So the, the way it's laid out in Genesis 1 is the spirit hovers. So before God speaks, God... The spirit is just hovering over the unformed reality, uh, over chaos or tohu bohu or whatever it is. Then God's, the, in, in Genesis, it's God hovers, God speaks. That's how God acts. For God to speak is to act, not so for us, but for God, that's how it works. Then God saw or sees, God evaluates, and then God rested at the end of each day. God, so hovering at the very beginning. And then you kind of imagine God waking up each day as it were, hovering, speaking, seeing, resting. And then at the very end, day seven, God sits down, beholds everything he'd made. So hover, speak, see, rest matches onto four more impressive sounding Latin derived words, which are contemplation, action, evaluation, contemplation. The creative life or the, the active life of creation, which is to act and then to evaluate, because that is part of creating. How did, how did I do? Yeah. Now, when God acts, it's always good. But when you and I act. And it's not always we, very good. It's a, a mix. We're like, well, that part was good. That was not. I just spoke. We were at a conference yesterday. I spoke yesterday. You did very good. I did medium good. I spend the next part of the day evaluating. I'm like, I didn't use my time well there. I may, I should have, you know, I evaluate. It's it's actually part of being a creator. All, I do it after every single teaching. Always. Every, everything. The problem we have in our busy modern worlds is we get stuck in an action evaluation loop. We act, we evaluate, then we're like, oh, better do it better next time. And we jump right back to action. Or you think about, you do this in companies. Like, how did, how did that sales meeting go? Well, now we need to do this. And when you only do the action evaluation and you never hover and you never rest, you actually never have the space 
to actually create because you are you are stuck in this loop of I did it. How did I do? Reactionary, I did it. Reaction, exhausting, reaction, reaction. burnout, fatigue, tired, and then you're like, oh, I need my Sabbath to just get a break, which is not what Sabbath is. Your nightly rest is your break. Like your eight or nine hours of sleep. Sabbath is the apex. It's Sabbath. the delight. It's the, yeah. you're most fully alive and living. Exactly. In fact, in some ways, I, I often take a nap on, on Sunday and that's a glorious thing. <laughs> um, but in some ways, if you're like really sleepy on Sunday, it's actually, that's not what Sabbath's meant to be. Like if Sabbath's just your day to like catch up on all the sleep you missed, that's not right. That means you've been misliving you've the been, other six days. You've been living without enough just daily rest. Um, we actually need a contemplation at the beginning, which is before I try to make anything, I just behold. Yeah. I just behold what, and because I we're see, not. I see, I look. I, I, I look, wait. I attend, I listen. And I, one of the most powerful things I ever heard was from Leanne Payne, a remarkable teacher of the spiritual life, who said, uh, if we do not contemplate, we exploit. Without contemplation, there's exploitation. If I come into a conversation with you and I don't first just behold you, I will use you. I'll use you for my ends. I will grab you for my purposes. Whatever action evaluation loop I'm in, I'm like, how can John Mark help me? What I need to do first is hover with you. Here is this other person. Not for my use. They are, they are good. They're very good. They're created in the image of God. I've got to contemplate you before I do anything with you. <laughs> wow. Or I will, I will exploit you. Um, and then we need the contemplation at the end, which is just the glad celebration that I brought something into being. And it's different from evaluation. We conflate these two. So evaluation is, I've written a page of my book. I send it to my editor. My editor's like, well, this part was good. Rework this. That's absolutely part of any good work, Right. There's another part of the writing process, which is the book is done. It's not perfect, but it is very good because we worked as image bearers to make it as very good as we could. And I open up my books. I don't know. I'm very curious whether you do this. I open up my books. When I'm done, I turn to a random page and I just read it out loud. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, this is awfully good. And I, I actually prevent myself from evaluating it. Sure. Could it be better in some sense? I suppose. Yeah, of course, good. But I just celebrate it. It's literally in black and white at that point. You can't change it. And you can't it. change it. So why not just, you know, Maka Fujimori says every artist needs to be their first fan. Like you, 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 any artist has to first love their own creation before they expect anyone else to love it. And it's my job, having done the action and evaluation, to have a Sabbath with my work because Sabbath is the glad contemplation of work well done. Yeah. It's it's God it's God is not going off on vacation like to forget about the world. He's now sitting down and throwing not trying to escape from it. He's trying escape. to engage with it. He's he's just but he's beholding it. No more need to act, instead to behold. And and if we lived a life of good work and good rest in the middle of the week, then on the seventh day of the week, we just behold everything we've been able to do and the things we had to leave undone as a testimony that we're not God, and we just enjoy. Wow. And then you wake up on Monday and you have got something new to offer. I mean, you hover and then you've got something. But you skip those two things of hovering and celebrating and you will end up exploiting. And you can get a lot done, but at the expense of other people, at the expense of creation and at the expense of a and relationship. And it's not sustainable. You can't and get a lot done over out. a long no, haul. You'll, it's a short-term strategy. Right. You'll die. Yeah. 
you know, my final, final question to you, Andy, was just, I don't, we don't know each other super well, but I've had the privilege of, you know, spending a little bit of time with you. And there are so many things I love about you. You're brilliant, but you're one of those people whose life is more beautiful than your mind. And that's saying something because of your mind. And, uh, but one of the things that's so striking to me is how joyful you are. And I find it's very rare to meet somebody who is smart and happy. In fact, it feels like there's a correlation between IQ and depression. And I, I actually believe there is one scientifically, I if I understand the data be. correctly. Yeah. But you are so joyful. And I was going to ask, like, what is that? Did you just win the genetic lottery or whatever? And I think you've just answered it for me. I think not just, you know, Marva J. Dawn, who wrote that beautiful book on Sabbath many decades ago, she writes about a Sabbath spirituality how Sabbath isn't just a day of the week. It's not just a practice. It's not even just an anchor practice. It's like a whole way of being in the world. You know, you could frame it through your kind of, you know, contemplate like that whole thing. That's a way of being in the world. And you, you, you just reference the Sabbath ladder of day to month to week to month to year. So I don't know if that's your answer, but you are just a compelling person. And we're so grateful for you. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your fidelity to Jesus and his teachings. Thank you for your open heart toward the great tradition of wisdom for thousands of years, and yet following the narrow way and the positive sense of narrow, the specific way of human flourishing with Jesus. So really grateful for you. Bless you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks.